Welcome back to our series. And we're talking about how to build a successful family. And we're using the Ten Commandments to do that. And uh, what we believe is that if we'll understand the meaning of these ten principles and apply them in our lives and particularly in our families, we're going to experience blessing, security, stability, and strength. Because that's what God wants you to have in your life and your family. But I have to correct a little faulty thinking that we sometimes have when it comes to the Ten Commandments. The faulty thinking is we sometimes think that the Ten Commandments are ten rules that if I keep these rules, then God will love me. And that is not true. See, before God ever gave the Ten Commandments, he already was in a love relationship with his people. Same thing's true in your life and my life. The Bible says that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And all I have to do is put my faith in Jesus Christ. And the word of God assures me that I am his and that, and that I can enjoy God's love. Keeping the commands, keeping the word of God is just how we then turn around and thank God and express our love relationship to him. It's kind of like a bride and groom when they stand before the pastor. And they say their vows to each other. Before they say those vows to each other, they have already fallen in love. Now through the vows, they express how they intend to show each other, demonstrate to each other their love and their faithfulness. And that's what we do with the Ten Commandments. That's what we do with the Word of God. We turn around and we live it out toward God as a way to say, and God, I love you too. And God, here's how I want to show you I love you through my obedience and through my faithfulness. So this morning we're going to look at the second command and take your Bibles out as we get ready to do that. Turn to Exodus chapter 20 and I'm actually going to start reading a little ahead so we remember what the first command is because they're very similar to each other. It says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. That was the first command. God says, I want to be in first place. Now, The second command, just like it, verse 4, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Now, the whole word idol or idolatry, that whole issue occurs about 220 times throughout the Bible. And it is the one sin that God condemns more than any other. Now, he condemns other sins, don't get me wrong, but you'll hear in the Bible him condemning idolatry more and more and more and more because it's so present. It's such an issue, not just for ancient people, but for you and for me as well. All of us have it in our system to be idolatrous. All of us have it innately in our lives, whether we're young or old, We have it in our hearts to want to give our affection and our attention and our loyalty 
to whoever or whatever promises to bring us success and take care of us. So that could be money. It could be a boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be a spouse. It could be our career. It could be our looks. It could be our athleticism. There are any number of things that we gravitate toward in life and hang on to and and kind of treat as our security blanket. And what it in essence becomes is our idol. And to help us really understand the effect this can have on us, we're going to take a look for a moment at one of the great theologians, uh, Charles Schultz, who wrote the Peanuts uh, cartoon strip. And uh, one of my favorite characters who has an issue with idolatry. Watch this. <coughs> my blanket, Charlie Brown. My blanket. I can't be without it. After I gave you my blanket, my life has been a nightmare. Ew. <coughs> See, I keep passing out. I can't be without my blanket. (coughs) I need my blanket, Charlie Brown. Gee, Linus, I don't know what's with your blanket. I've been so busy studying that I forgot all about your blanket. Forgot about my blanket? (sighs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. Gee, I'm sorry, Linus. I really have been studying so hard. I must have misplaced it. Maybe I left it in the lobby. Hmm. No, I think I left it at the library. I really haven't got a new place except for the library. That's it. I must have left it at the library. Library? I give him a good luck charm, my beautiful blanket, and he thinks it's at the library. Charlie Brown, I ought to kick you. All right. So my question for you is, uh, by the way, anybody bring their security blanket today? Or their little thing you always kept in? Anybody? A few of you remembered. Many blessings on you. Or do you just normally bring it anyway? Just kidding. All right? All right? But all of us have a security blanket in our lives. And I want you to ask yourself right now, Who or what is that security blanket in your life that you can't imagine living without? Whoever, whatever that is, it may be your idol. It may be your idol. Let's take a little deeper look at what God says to us in this commandment. Come back again to Exodus chapter 20 and listen to verse 4. He says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Did you catch that phrase? He says, I, the Lord your God. Notice what God is saying is, I'm God and there are no competitors There's no other God but me. I am the true God. I am the living God. I am the all-knowing God. I am the all-powerful God. I am the all-present God. I am the God who fills up space and space cannot contain me. And I am your God, Israel. I am your God, Compass Church. I am your God. And he would name each one of us individually. He's saying, I am this I am this boundless God who cannot be compartmentalized. I am this wild, untamable God, and I am your God. 
It's an invitation. It's a relationship. And so he says, therefore, since I am giving myself to you, please have no other gods in your life or in your family's life. Now, one of the things that God is also saying to us that we don't understand if we don't know the culture is back, at those, back in those days, they would create images for their gods. And the Israelites had a tendency, remember the golden calf? They had a tendency to want to put God into a shape or into an image and then worship him that way. And God says, I don't want you putting me into a shape or into a picture. I mean, imagine for a moment that I change my relationship with Marsha, my wife, and, and one day I get up and instead of kissing her good morning, I go to the wall and I find a portrait of her and I kiss the portrait. Mwah, good morning, honey. So good to see you. And then instead of going down and having breakfast with her across the table from me, I put her picture across the table from me. And while I'm eating and slurping my cereal, I'm talking to her. And she's watching this whole thing. And then I open up my briefcase and I put a picture in it. And we go to the car together and I open it up and I put it in the seat next to me. Put the seatbelt around it. And we drive to work and I'm talking to her. And I get to work and I unbuckle and I put it in the briefcase. And I bring it in the office and I sit at my desk and I put her at the desk. And all day long I'm having a conversation with her. Then when it's time to go home, I go home and I get in the house. And I open the briefcase, I pull it out. And Marsha has this beautiful meal fixed for me there. And she sits down here, but I put her picture over there. And I have a conversation with her picture the whole time. Then it's time to go to bed. And I take her up to the bedroom. And I put her picture next to one sink. And, my picture, or, and I stand at the other sink. And I brush my teeth while I talk to her. And then I go to our bed. And I lay down in bed. And I put her frame, the picture frame right next to me on the pillow. Marsha, how would that make you feel? Huh? Lonely, all right? She would think I lost my mind, right? She'd be like, what has happened to you? I don't want you to kiss my picture. I want you to kiss me. I don't want you to talk to my picture. I want you to talk to me. I don't want you to sleep next to a picture of me. I want you to sleep next to me. I'm your wife. That's what God is saying. God is saying, I don't want you to put put me into some kind of image. Because then you're going to be talking to the image. You're going to be worshiping the image. That image can't do a thing for you. I want you to look at me. I want you to talk to me. I want you to love me. And yes, I am spirit. Worship me in spirit and in truth. Because I'm not here and I'm not there. I'm everywhere around you. I am in you if you're my follower. I want you to connect to me. Isn't that that wild when you think about it? God says this untamable, wild, uncontrollable, uncompartmentalized God says, I want you, I want you to connect with me. I want to connect with you. Isn't that cool? I guess it's not. I thought it was pretty cool anyway. I think that's pretty wild, don't you? God wants that kind of relationship with you and me. So, Pastor, I don't have any issues there because there's nothing in my home, in my car, in my life that is this little statue that I call God and that I bow down to and worship. I don't even think about that. My family, we don't have anything in the home where, where I grab my kids and say, no, let's all get on our knees and bow down to God. No, we don't do that, so we're okay. We don't have any idols. Wait a minute. Idols aren't always objects. Sometimes idols are in our minds. What I mean is sometimes what we do to God is we, we form in our minds a concept of God That is a false concept of God, therefore a false God. 
Let me give an example. Sometimes when you talk to people about God, you hear them speak and they reveal how they think about God. And sometimes we'll talk about God as the man upstairs God. I talk to people like that and they'll say, well, I'll have to talk to the man upstairs about that one. Well, I don't know what the man upstairs thinks about it. Well, the man upstairs is watching out over me. Now, I know they probably mean well, but God is more than the man upstairs. The minute God becomes the man upstairs, he be, he's limited. And, he, and the fact that I call him a man makes him kind of like me, just maybe a bit bigger and better than me. Other people, they don't necessarily say it, but the way they think about God, they treat God as though he were Santa Claus, the Santa Claus God. He's, check, you know, he's got his list, he's checking it twice, he's looking to see who's been what? I was going to have us sing it, but it's too early. All right? You know, and that then leads me into thinking that I've got to do enough nice things for God to like me. But then it also leads me to thinking, if I do enough nice things, then I have an expectation that God's going to give me something. But that... That's not God. That's not who God is. Some people have the idea of the cozy, comfy God. And the cozy, comfy God is God who just loves everybody. And uh, eventually when this world is all done, you know, God's just going to look at all of us, no matter who we are and where we come from, no matter what pathway we took to get to heaven. He's going to say all paths lead to home. Welcome home, children. I'm glad you're here. Don't worry about your sins. As long as you did your best, except for you, Adolf Hitler, and those like you, you're judged. I'm going to deal with you. But everybody else, come on in. We like that kind of God, don't we? See, that, that's... But that's my concept. That's a cultural concept of God. It's a false God. Therefore, it's a form of idolatry in my mind. You say, well, how do I know who the real God is? Well, we go to how the real God has revealed himself. That is in his word. And I want to worship the God that's been revealed in God's word. And understand that even God's word cannot fully reveal God to us. God, through his word, has revealed a lot to us and what we need to know about him. But God is so big and so expansive. There's no book that contain him. There are not enough words to describe him. And God says, that's who I want you to worship. I want you to worship me in all of the mystery of who I am. And use my word to get you started. It'll tell you about me and creation. It'll tell me about me and how I work and how I think and how I act and the mysteries of who I am. Parents, I want you to make sure God's saying to us that you pass this on to your kids. They see you in awe and worship of me. They see you in the mystery of me. They see you overwhelmed by me. Your grandchildren hear you talk about me and your, the wonder that you have of me so that as they watch you and listen to you, they're going, man, I want to know that same God. That grandma and grandpa know. I want to know the same God that my dad and mom knows. He's wild. He's, he's untamable. He's expansive. He's a mystery. I want to devote my life to understanding and pursuing him. That's what we have to do for our families. But the honest, honestly, you know, a lot, of us, a lot of us make God rather boring and dull. And he fits in a container. And he's necessary, not Someone we necessar- that we long for. You see, if I limit God, what happens is pretty soon I get bored with God. And when I get bored with God, I look for something or someone else that's going to titillate me, that's going to excite me, that's going to raise the hairs on my neck. And there's so much the culture offers us to do that for us. When if you think about it, God should be, God should be like, like the greatest roller coaster in the world. I mean, he should be the 
thrill of a lifetime. God should be the one that raises the hair on our neck. I was going to say my head, but that wouldn't work. All right? God is the one who should, who should pump us up and excite us. Let's be honest with each other. Many of us are bored with God. Because God's just a concept. He's an image. We've contained him. Our God is a wild God. And God says, if you, if you stop seeing me that way, if you don't teach your children to look at me that way, you're going to get bored, and then you're going to end up hanging on to something else that you think will do better for you. What are some of those things we hang on to? Tim Keller, uh, who's a pastor and author, uh, describes it this way. First of all, he, he, just, he describes sin in a unique way. Listen to what he says. He said, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Please understand that. He says, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily what? Idolatry. So how does that work? He gives some examples in his book, The Reason for God. Listen to what he says. If you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner... You'll be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. He's saying, look, if you're going to center your life on your spouse or your your dearest, closest friend or fiancé, if they're going to be the center of your life, you are going to become jealous. You're going to become dependent. It's just going to be very unhealthy. He says, if you center your life and your identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. The center of my life cannot be my children. It can't be Marsha, my wife. It cannot be Ben, Bethany, or Tim. And it cannot be Catalina or my grandson, Harrison. It can't be the center of my life. It'll ruin them. It'll ruin me. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you'll be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. I can't let my job be my security blanket. He says, if you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If money and possessions becomes my security blanket, they will control me. I will always fear somebody taking it from me, like Linus in the video, and I'll have a headache, and I'll fall over, and I'll be upset. We see that in our culture today with the economic problems we're having. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. And so we see so much drug addiction and sex addiction today and video addiction today, the video game industry, the addiction to that, the adrenaline, the thrill of it. But it's shallow. It's gone in a few moments. And then I want something more to keep me going. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you'll be, constantly over, you'll be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You'll fear confronting others and therefore be a useless friend. If my whole life, listen young people, if my whole life is about other kids liking me, my peers liking me, I will be a miserable human being because they like you today and hate you tomorrow. If your whole, whole life is just about getting people to like you and be and be comfortable with you, you are going to be miserable. 
If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you'll be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. The whole Republican-Democrat thing comes to my mind, how polarized our nation is. Some people can't live without hating somebody, having an opponent. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. God says, you cannot have anything else in your hands except me. I want to be your security blanket. He says in that passage, I am jealous for your affection. And the word he uses there is burn for jealous. You know, he says, I burn for your affection. I burn to be your one and only security blanket. Why? Because I love you. See, if you, if you make me first, I can bless you. But if you don't make me first, I can't impart what I want to you and to your family. And that's why he goes on and says there is a curse to the individual or to the family who rejects God and places their affection on someone or something else. He says it's a curse that will follow you to your third and fourth generations. Now that does not mean that God says because you did bad, I'm going to take it out on your kids. What it means is because you did bad, your badness is going to pass on to those kids because it's the only example they see. So if I say, God, you're not my security blanket, money is, my career is, my success is, my looks is, fame is, something else is, or I have a wrong view of God and that's my security blanket. My kids watch this, my grandkids watch this. And the God I embrace, they then embrace, they then take hold of, they then pursue. And what happens is as generation goes by, God becomes deluded in that generation. For instance, I grew up in a home where my father and mother taught me about the untameness of God, the wildness of God, the greatness of God. And I have appreciation for that. And they told me the way I could know God is to know his word and to keep his word and to obey his word. So I raised my children, Ben and Bethany and Timothy, to believe in the greatness of God, to pursue God, to love God, to want to obey and keep his word. Now they have children Ben and Sarah have children. They have my granddaughter, Catalina, my grandson, Harrison. And now I pray my heart and mind out every day. God, help Ben and Sarah and uh, uh, Pablo and Bethany to make sure they teach their children to know you as the great and only true God and to obey your word. Because if they don't, it will spell the demise of the family line generations to come. But if they do, look what he says. In the last verse, he says, But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Folks, I can prove these verses to you by asking you to look at the families that you know and the generations around you where God has been neglected, God has been forgotten, money, success, careers have been pursued, And where are those families now? Where are those children and grandchildren now? Are they walking closer to God or are they becoming at a greater distance from God? If you don't want that to happen to your family, now is the time. How do you build a successful family? You focus them on God and God alone, God first, God the most, and on keeping God's word so he can bless. 
And you show them the fallacy of pursuing other security blankets that have no hope and no value. I'm so concerned for our kids. I'm so concerned for families, especially Christian families today. We talk to our kids about God. We talk to our kids about the Bible. But moms and dads, listen for just a moment. What do we honestly tell them is going to get them through life? We preach success to them. We preach getting the right job to them. We tell them to get the right grades. We want them to go to the right school. We want them to have surgery when they're 16. Let's give our girls bigger breasts because that's what boys like. Let's give them a better looking nose. I mean, that's the kind of gifts that parents are giving their girls these days. Let's get them to look the right way because if you look the right way, you'll be more successful in life. Get the right grades. Make the right performance. All that stuff doesn't matter. All that stuff destroys. It does not build up. It leaves you empty and shallow. And it becomes a curse that follows generation after generation after generation. But God says, man, if you just put me first, I'll take buckets, buckets of my unfailing love, and I'll just shower you with it. I'll just shower you with it. So let me ask you a question. Who or what is your security blanket today? You know, we give our security blankets names, right? My, my brother, this isn't mine. I didn't have one. I don't know why I never had a security blanket. But my brother had a security pillow. And uh, he called it Pilly, all right? Very original. And I, I still remember, I'm four years older than him, I can still remember him. Um, he would, it had these little frayed threads on the corners, and he would suck his thumb. It's like when he was 12. No, I was kidding, all right. all right? He would suck his thumb, and he would take his pillow, and he would twirl the threads in his ear. And it was like he was on Valium. He was like... <laughs> so I was talking to my friend, and, and she was telling me about her... Um, her brother's security blanket. I said, well, did your brother have a name for his security blanket? And she said, yeah. He called it his ah, A-H-H. Let's all say it together. Ah. She said he would take it and he would rub it against his face and then he would go, ah. (laughs) You know what? God, God, who contains space and space cannot contain him because he overflows it. God who's all-knowing, God who's all-powerful, God who is all-present, God who's untamable, God who is so wild. God says, I want to be your ah. I want to be that one thing that you hang on to. Because I'm hanging on to you. But I want to be, I want to be your ah. God, your eye this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning, there are so many false eyes in our life. Sex, pleasure, money, looks, fame. The list seems endless of what the world throws at us and says, this will make you secure. This will make you happy. And we chase after these false idols, oh God, and they leave us empty. But you, almighty God, you transcend space and time you will always be there for us 
God, we ask you to forgive us for chasing these false idols. And we ask you today to forgive us for our wrong concepts of you, that we would dare to grow bored of you. It means we don't really know who you are. I ask you to awaken in our hearts today a new appreciation for your vastness and your greatness. I pray that you would invite us to step off our safe edges into the unknown mystery of your being. That instead of reading your word as a history book, that we would read it as an invitation to explore the mystery and the majesty of who you are. Father, how do I find words to describe you? How do I find words to open our minds up to think about your vastness and your greatness? You just are. And I pray, oh God, that we would transfer our affection to you. I'm going to ask that none of us leave, even if you're a volunteer, until the benediction. Because right now, this is a holy moment and an opportunity for us to stand together and now give God the worship he deserves and make him the focus of our lives. Would you stand as we continue to worship?